everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. We are 100% sponsor-based, which means that all the revenues we derive come from sponsorships. But I try to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically trying to choose those who have values well aligned to the values expressed on this show, like freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do is a few ad reads right here at the top of the show and then a few ad, ad reads in the middle. And I hope you won't skip them. I hope you'll take the time, listen and see what they have to offer, because again, these are hand selected sponsors. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Pacific Bitcoin Conference, brought to you by SWAN. Now this is going to be a two-day event in Los Angeles, November 10th and 11th, 2022. And if you haven't been to a Bitcoin conference yet, I highly recommend it, as there really is no better way to get integrated into the Bitcoin community. Speakers announced so far include Michael Saylor, Lynn Alden, uh, many others. I'll be speaking as well. Uh, Michael Saylor is even quoted as saying, this is going to be the event of the year, so you definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, so go to PacificBitcoin.com and use discount code BREEDLOVE to get your tickets today. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Ledin. Ledin lets you do more with your digital assets. For instance, Ledin offers a B2X loan product that lets you leverage your existing Bitcoin to buy even more Bitcoin. Or you can also get traditional Bitcoin collateralized U.S. dollar loans through Ledin as well. Ledin also offers both Bitcoin and USDC denominated savings accounts, letting you generate yield on your digital assets. Recently, Ledin has launched a Bitcoin mortgage product as well that lets you use Bitcoin to buy a home or finance one that you already own. So go to Ledin.io, that's L-E-D-N.io today to sign up. Kurt Jaimungle, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Great to have you here. Just by way of quick introduction for my audience, uh, you are a filmmaker who decided to pursue filmmaking while studying mathematical physics at the University of Toronto. Uh, you are the host of the very popular Theories of Everything. Uh, you observe topics on theoretical physics, consciousness, God, free will, all the profound questions that we tend to outwardly ignore but inwardly wrestle with. Theories of Everything is one of the fastest growing science and philosophy podcasts. It analyzes the current state of Theories of Everything, that is... A surveillance of the field theories of everything, pros, cons, and the relations of each. To be a part of the discussion, type theories of everything. Oh, this is your, I was reading an intro for you, and it sounds like that last part is not part of what I should read. So theories of everything, very cool podcast uh, with a lot of interesting guests and fascinating conversations. Uh, what I thought we would do today is just talk about your experience uh, starting the show, running the show, hosting the show. Um, I'm really curious just individually as an, one, one podcaster to another. And then also um, I wanted to get a sense for like how much it's changed you, you know, because I know that doing this show, talking to a lot of big thinkers has certainly had an influence on me. So I wanted to get a feel for that for you. So just to get started, maybe you could tell my audience a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your podcast, 
and uh, how your journey brought you into this field. Sure. Thanks, man. So my name is Kurt, as you have heard already, and I have a podcast called Theories of Everything. What it is, it's more of a project than a podcast. And what I mean is that I'm interested in in TOES. So that's the acronym for Theories of Everything. I, I stumbled upon the Theories of Everything podcast in my effort to learn more about TOES. I want to... A theory of everything, first of all, well, what the heck is it? It's... That's not that's not easy to define because there's some controversy there. Some people take the word everything to mean everything. And then some people try to define, well, what is a thing? So that's Carl, Carl Friston's approach and Jacques Vallée has an approach like that. What the heck does it mean for there to be a thing and then every of it? Well, initially what I meant was quantum mechanics and then well, quantum field theory and then gravity, which is general relativity. Combining them is considered to be a toe. And then it's synonymized sometimes with grand unified theories, but those are actually separate. I'm interested in those as well. As I wanted to learn more about theories of everything, some people said consciousness is involved quantum mechanically, but perhaps even more fundamentally than that. And so at first being the person who came from an academic background and just learned math and physics, I was someone who excoriated that view as being generally one of mystics who misunderstand quantum mechanics and like to use the word quantum to give some scientific credence to whatever they're espousing mystically. But as I started investigating it more and more, I, I'm less and less certain about virtually everything. You wanted to know how did it change me? Well, it put me in this void where I tumble and it's, it's not exactly a pleasant place to be. So on the podcast, I also investigate consciousness. What role does that have to play in the with what role does that have to play with regard to the fundamental laws? And are is the conceptualization of fundamental laws the correct conceptualization? Because that implies reductionism, and maybe that's not the correct paradigm. So I'm interested in that as well. How about your podcast? What got you started with yours, man? <laughs> um, I well, assume it's not just about money. I looked through your guest list. Some yeah. of these people have not... Well, maybe tangentially have some views on money. Yeah, we, we definitely get into the nature of money. So it gets quite philosophical because the history of human beings and the history of humanity are pretty tightly bound. Um, I What started got me started on the show was I have an accounting and finance background and I had basically started a company to work for myself. Initially, it was a CFO consulting services well, when I started that company, it freed me up to investigate a lot of new things. This was late 16, early 17. And so I started looking, learning about crypto, really. And long story short, one thing led to another. Uh, I ended up way down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and then operating a hedge fund in the space for a number of years. Um, and during that time, I was writing monthly updates to my investors and I also started publishing like research findings just on the history of money and, and whatnot. And these things were becoming popular. My written work was becoming popular in Bitcoin circles. And I got invited on a podcast to talk about it. Those podcasts were popular. And so once again, kind of one thing led to another. And um, people were telling me they wanted more, right? More writing, more talking. And so I just jumped on the bandwagon and started a podcast. <laughs> Uh, I got really lucky. My first guest was Michael Saylor. 
mm. came on for man seven talk about a first episodes. guest episodes yeah just you know dynamite guest and you know i i guess part of the interaction with him and then also just other things going on in life i really started to want to focus on education um i just decided i was getting more more meaning out of that and so the podcast is a great way to help you know educate people about things to learn really i don't i don't even like to say education necessarily because on the podcast, I'm basically learning, right? I'm learning from these other guests. We're engaging in dialogue, trying to get to truth on some particular topic. And you're really just letting your audience observe that dialogical process in a way. So I've called it learning out loud, you know, as opposed, mm. whereas education sort of sounds like I have some final answer that I'm mm -hmm. trying to sell to an audience, which I don't really. I'm just, you know, it's exploratory, strong opinions, loosely held, as they say. Hmm. Um, but yeah, that's it in a nutshell for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to school for, for finance and accounting? Accounting and finance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. so I had a bit of a background about it. Yes, we do. The other part of your question, we talk about way more than just money. Um, you know, money is this tool that we use to like establish consensus on the relativity of exchange values for instance so it's got these informational components it's got energy components uh it's got a component uh, when you look at property rights i think it's something like the way human beings express territoriality you know like all most social animals are territorial humans have just enshrined it in this this institution called private property and money is the most important form of private property so we talk about a lot of other things we go down a lot of rabbit holes uh through that um to get back to you so i i wonder was the title the theory theories of everything the first time i heard that term was i think i read the book by stephen hawking mm. pretty sure he has mm -hmm. a book theory of everything uh that i read when i was young so i wanted to ask you about the inspiration for the title and then also you were just saying your your interaction with your guests has made you less sure of everything, which is interesting, right? It's almost, I find that happening with me as well, that I've become much more, uh, I have a much greater affinity for Socrates when he said, the only thing I know is that I know nothing at all. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I also think that he, he did claim to know some things. So firstly, he was a theist. He believed strongly in the gods. And there was something else that he believed that he's so him saying I know nothing was it's popularized as his main phrase, but I don't know if that's yeah, I don't know if that's what he truly believed. But anyway, I, I agree. Yeah. Except I don't want to know nothing. It's not a <laughs> like I said, it's not pleasant. So right. I try to minimize that, but I just, I can't help but being sh shaken terribly from time to time. So, okay, the name theories of everything that comes from the physics term, it's a physics term. And so it means what are the laws that we can write down mathematically that can predict every other observable phenomenon in a physical sense, materialist sense. You don't need to insert the word material there because it turns out science is philosophically agnostic despite most scientists thinking that it 
proves or claims or assumes materialism. It doesn't. Mm. But anyway, so how can you predict any phenomenon or show that whatever we see here at a large scale, so for instance, this, that this is derived from something that's more fundamental. And then also it'd be great if this theory could be, could yield new predictions and be falsifiable. That's pretty much what the word theory of everything means. And like I mentioned, technically it's gravity and quantum field theory, but but it's taken to be a bit more than that now. Right. Okay. Now, now I want to talk to you a little bit about paradoxes, if you don't mind. Yeah. One of my favorite okay. words. Okay. Right, right. So have you heard of Newcomb's paradox? I don't think so. Okay, so so it's a money paradox. And I just in case you're interested, I'm writing a book on paradoxes. I'm writing a book on paradoxes slash free will and consciousness, basically the subjects of the Toll podcast. Mm. And I'm doing so because I, I forget so much of it. Like from one podcaster to another, I study voraciously for different guests. And then I end up forgetting it about one month later, almost all of what I've studied because it's much like I'm cramming for an exam or a test. And mm. then I've, I have to move on to the next course. And I don't like that. It's, it's not a, well, I, I, it's, it's a, I feel like a fool and there's so much else that I need to know. And I need to remember, I need to have the stepping stones and then constantly removing the stepping stones or they're just disappearing behind me. Mm. So as an effort for me to remember more, I'm writing a book. I'm like, that's like, and well, anyway, who knows if this book will even be released, but either way, I'm writing a book. So paradoxes, there's a paradox called Newcomb's, called Newcomb's paradox. And what it is, 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 Okay, imagine there's a there's a genie. Okay, so there's there's this genie and he has two boxes in front of you. And he says and one box is transparent, it's made out of glass. Mm -hmm. So you can see what's inside, and the other is a safe. It's made out of metal, you can't see what's inside. So the transparent one, the glass one right here, has a thousand dollars in it. You can see the thousand dollars. Okay. Okay, so you can see the thousand dollars. And the other one, the genie says, what's in this safe is either a million dollars or nothing. Okay, so, well, what decides whether it's a million dollars or nothing? The genie says, as soon as you entered this room, I scanned your brain. I'm like a supercomputer. I'm like God. I predicted whether you will choose both. Like, I, you're going to have the choice. Do you want both boxes to take home or do you want just the safe? Okay, now if the, the genie says, I've predicted, well, I'm not going to tell you my prediction, but here's what the rules are. If you take both, there will be nothing in the safe. So I'm going to punish you for being greedy. Mm -hmm. But if you just choose the safe, there's going to be $1 million inside. Now I am infallible. So I know which one you will choose. What do you do? Okay, so let me know if that, if that, if the conditions are clear. I think the conditions are clear, but isn't it obvious that he would just, well, I guess if you believe the genie, you would just take the metal box. Right, right. Okay, now here's where there's some conflict, because as a rational being who wants to maximize the amount of money you have, when you enter the room, there's two, dis there's two, dis this is why it gets into the tricky subjects of rationality, which people think is so clear cut, it's not, and same with free will. So there's two different kinds of rationality. So one where you want to maximize your own, well, two different kinds of decision theory. So there's causal, it doesn't matter. There's names for these. One where you want to maximize the 
the amount of money you have. And then the other where you just think about, well, what does the evidence lead me to believe? Okay. Mm -hmm. So the evidence leads you to believe that, hey, this genie has done this many, I didn't say this, but has done this thousands of times and is always correct. He always predicts correctly. So, and he said he's infallible. I'm going to believe him. This is the voice of God. I'm going to just choose this one safe. Okay, but then the the causal decision theory says, well, I'm all the genie has already made up his mind. So then the other point of view is, look, I've entered this place. The money is either in the safe or not. Mm. So no matter what, there's either a million dollars there or there's nothing. I may as well take both boxes so I can get a million plus a thousand or I can get maybe there's nothing in the box. Let me just take both. Mm -hmm. So that's the paradox. Well, which one do you do? It's interesting. Like, uh, the, the point is like, well, if you want to maximize the amount of money, what do you do? That's essentially the question. What do you do? Yeah. So, so it's drawing this line between the two forms of rationality you describe. One is like enhancing or maximizing your expected value, which would be to take both boxes versus what does the evidence lead you to believe, which mm -hmm. is like, uh, I guess the other embedded presupposition there is that if if the it's almost like the genie already either did put the money in the box or not. Yeah, yeah. Right? I should I should have said that. That's that is the case. The yeah. genie has put the money or hasn't. Already. Oh, it has. As okay. soon as you came in, he made that decision. Okay. And then he placed money in there without you looking. Got it. I was or not. Or, the or genie, just... He could make it appear or vanish based on your decision, perhaps. No, 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 no. Yeah. So it's already there. So now, now that you know that, what would you do, Robert? Well, I guess if I'm talking to a genie. <laughs> I believe he's a genie. I'm probably going to believe the guy, but um, that the devil's kind of in the details for what makes you believe. Okay, so now here's now here's a variation on that same problem. Okay, you can advise your friend. So there's still a genie, the whole setup, except now it's your friend coming in, and it's not you. You're standing behind the box. So remember the box. This one is transparent, and then this one is opaque. Mm -hmm. Okay, well you're now on this side. So you can see the transparent one, just like your friend can see the yeah. transparent one. But on the other side of the safe, there's some glass. So you can actually see whether the genie put in the money or not. Mm. Now, you would always tell your friend, just take both boxes. Because you can see. You, you can see either there's money in there or there's not. So just take both boxes. Every time the decision is just take both boxes because you can see it. Then mm. the question is, well, why does that make a difference at all? Wow, that's a great question. Well, anyway, it's it's just it's just for me. I think I, I think about this, and I I have to stop. I have to tell myself to stop, and like I have OCD and these intrusive thoughts now, and I have to do meditation and mindfulness so I don't think about it. And that's a really it. interesting one, actually, because I yeah you. Well, I guess what so the takeaway there is always make, always maximize expected value. This is like poker, right? If you're trying, if you're playing really high, if you're playing poker at a high level you're basically always trying to make positive expected value calculations. So it sounds like that was yeah. this case that you should just always take both boxes, no matter what the genie says. Yeah. But, but it's strange because the genie is right. And there shouldn't be any money in the first box if you're going to take both boxes. So the, what's the resolution to this paradox? There is none. This is something that's been debated for, I think decades mm. and there are proposed solutions and then people find errors with those solutions. And, and this continues on and on. So, so 
there's also the question of well I think on the on the theories of everything podcast we talk about UFOs sometimes and people are like well why do you why the heck do you care about UFOs and evidence and so on and so on the extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and so on well firstly evidence is not is not clear cut secondly it's not as if there's a difference between extraordinary evidence and regular evidence mm-hmm. as Brian Keating says it's not like he's an experimental physicist he's like there's no box that i tell my graduate students okay now let's get the extraordinary evidence put it in the extraordinary evidence box but and then there's some paradoxes when it comes to what constitutes evidence yeah so so i i don't know how to say them without uh, seems like too though because if, if you did just trust the genie and only take the metal box but the money was not in the box and wasn't wouldn't the genie be lying at that point no the, it, then then you would have gotten one million but i thought he already decided just whether take, the money is in there or not he he no he calculates as soon as you come in he calculates he reads your brain and he knows what decision you're going to make huh. so if he knows that you're going to take just the safe there will just be one million dollars in the safe and if he thinks you're going, if he knows that you're going to take both, then he will make sure there's zero. Then, then so, he doesn't put anything. So if he knows you're only going to take the metal box, and he puts the million dollars in the box, and then your friend is standing on the other side of the box telling you to just take both anyways, because there's a million and one. Yeah, that's where the paradox is. Like, I guess your friend I, doesn't I, know the rules of the game; otherwise, he wouldn't be telling you to take. Well, well, right then and there, if he tells you. To take both that's where that's what's so tricky about this is that as soon as another person observes it does this it wh- why does that make reality. a difference why why the heck would that make a difference at all there... anyway that's an yeah we can comments. we can continue to talk about that for like thanks for hours and hours my brain first thing in the day here <laughs> Yeah, that's a really interesting one. So your book is going to be about this, then, right? Writing, exploring paradoxes, free will, consciousness, etc. Yeah, yeah. There and then, right? Just, just. I like to do that, and then secondly, well, firstly, it's fun, and I'm sure you have fun on your podcast. Maybe that's the first, the primary reason you do it. Right. And for me, and I'm sure for you, you would be doing what you're doing if you had all the money in the world. Yeah, so maybe not all the money in the world. You would maybe help out different causes and so on, but you understand. Yeah, it's it's a very fulfilling occupation and one that came about pretty quite organically. You know, it's not something I ever chose for myself, which is interesting. It's how that evolves over time. But yeah, I love to read. And I love to talk about big ideas, and now I get to do that for a living. So it's it's pretty incredible. Um, mm-hmm. What was your inspiration well, originally for for starting? theories of everything i wanted to learn donald hoffman's theories so mm-hmm. if you've heard of donald hoffman yep, yeah okay, so i wanted to learn he he makes many claims about consciousness and people just take it as and say wow that's so profound and i'm and, I, and i'm thinking okay but he's tying this to some mathematics I have a background in math, so why don't I just read the papers and then interview him? It doesn't seem like anyone is doing that. So that's what I did. And then I had a a great technical interview with him. And people seem to like that because there seemed to be a dearth of that in the podcast space. Mm. So then I was was encouraged by that because I actually like to read papers. And Mm. I like to not play devil's advocate or pinholes or criticize, but just talk to people and 
and say, here's what occurs to me when you say so-and-so. And let's, it's like office hours with a professor. You, you're allowed to ask whatever questions you like to this intellectual giant. So why don't I just do that and, and see where this goes? And it ended up taking off. Mm. I'm, I'm again saying I'm I think this is just the this is the story of of podcasts I, I I don't I don't know of many people who are successful at podcasts what I mean is that they have a somewhat large podcast that went into it trying to make a podcast right. it's more like they happened upon it yeah yeah that's yeah that's, it's... do you think that do you think so I'm sure people ask you like what's the advice that you have for a new podcaster do you do you think that it's is it is there such a huge element of chance that you would just either have to stumble upon it and be successful or well essentially get lucky or well you understand what i'm saying yeah i think um i mean my general advice is to do what is interesting to you right like my litmus test for my episodes is i want to have conversations with people that i think i will find interesting I have questions I want answered, you know, for whatever reason. And so if I'm genuinely engaged and hopefully attaining some dialogue with my guests, that that seems to be the magic that people really get into. It's like dialogue, active dialogue about big ideas is almost like a spectator sport where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see two people like when I see Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris debate, you know, not that a podcast always has to be a debate, but that's one form of dialogue that is um, exhilarating, right? You're seeing two people kind of pushing the boundaries on their mental models, kind of battling in a way. And then you're a, you're a spectator in that process. So it's challenging your own viewpoints and, mm-hmm. um, you know, whether it's, whether it's a debate format or just a, a discussion format, I feel like that, um, that process where you're banging these things together, you're reaching for unexplored territory, you know, trying to get um, a, a misconception brought into the world of knowledge or, or common consensus somehow. That seems to be the sport that is that is podcasting or dialogue. So I try and just, yeah, try to aim for people that I think are interesting to talk to about ideas I want to learn about. Yeah, I think I, I was, I, I just... I think Plato had the first podcast it's just before there were podcasts. Like he had the dialogical forum with Socrates right. and so on. And I, I think that's what podcasts are and are an extension of that. We're all, all just, so in a sense, we're all following Rogan, yeah. but in another sense, we're all following Plato. Yeah. No, that's a great framing. I've, I've said that podcast is like the resurgence of dialogue in the digital age, because in the 20th century, we had a very top down media model. Right. I, I, when my mom was a kid, I remember her saying all we had were channels three, six, three, nine and twelve. I think she said, if the president's on, you're fucked. So we moved from that model where there's like very few media organs, you know, propagating out to everyone. Yeah, so now we have this. It's like it's like from a yeah. one mini computer networking model to uh-huh. a mini model. And now, uh-huh. you know, nodes on this distributed network of thought called the internet yeah, that must speak that must speak that must resonate well with you because you if you're into bitcoin you're you have a central philosophical tenet of decentralization yes i i'm curious to ask you if you don't mind something i was thinking about is how far does that go 
And what I mean by that is, is there such a thing as too much freedom, too much decentralization? Well, I think it's a good question. And um, there's definitely trade-offs. You know, there's the old adage that if you want to go far, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So if you mm -hmm. stick to one centralized plan, right? If someone mm -hmm. laid out a plan right now and just said, hey, we need to build spaceships. Everyone in the world needs to build spaceships. Just full-time, flat out, that's what we need to do. That would be like one centralized plan. And if everyone did that, well, we could make a lot of spaceships really quickly, right? We could do it really mm -hmm. fast. But I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think like to adhere to a centralized plan over time doesn't seem to be sustainable because what you what it requires everyone to do is to drop their own wants or preferences and follow the central plan, right? And that's why I think central planning historically has failed many, many times. Um, the libertarian philosopher Hayek made a great point too. He said, even if you could craft the perfect central plan and say, here's what everyone should do in the world right now to best satisfy everyone else's wants in the most profitable, economically efficient way, that the moment you put that plan into motion, it would start to deviate from reality because reality is always changing. So central planning, again, even if it was the perfect plan for a moment in time, it would never... It's hard for it to be sustainable over time because reality is always changing. The opposite end of that spectrum, it's really central planning versus decentralized planning, right? Because decentralization doesn't mean no planning. It just means each individual plans for themselves or they engage in, in um, you know, common enterprises like companies with others and they, they make collective plans. But the point is there's no plan being imposed from on high on you. That's what I, I think decentralization would, would kind of be the spirit of. And if if you want something that's going to last for a long time, you know, like a mode of, of human socioeconomic organization that's going to be sustainable, that's going to go far, I think you have to do it um, in a decentralized way, ultimately. Uh, there's a great paper on this called The Use of Knowledge in Society by Hayek, same guy I just mentioned. And he makes this argument that you know, knowledge sort of emerges everywhere and at local scales and it's, it, it's utility diminishes, right? Like you get local knowledge that's useful right then and there, but if you had to pass that knowledge to a bureaucracy, wait two weeks, get approval, and then finally it comes back and you can do whatever the thing is, that really reduces the adaptivity of the marketplace and market actors, right? They can't act on local fresh knowledge, right? So it's losing it's losing some value when it goes through the machinery of bureaucracy, for instance. So I think you want to decentralize as much as possible. Um, but that sort of leaves, leaves out the big central questions like what should we be doing as a society? What should we be optimizing for? Is it GDP? Is it some other metric of human flourishing? You know, et cetera. And I think Bitcoin's kind of an interesting animal in that way that it's a decentralized network that doesn't have any political leaders inside of it, yet it's centered on this motif of 21 million. Like that is kind of the central plan of Bitcoin, mm. right? It's like no matter what mm -hmm. happens, this thing stays at 21 million. Why is it 21 and not 20? It's arbitrary. It's arbitrary what the number is, actually. It's just the fact that it doesn't change.
Yeah. So you have a money that can't cannot be inflated or counterfeited. And that's the key. Mm -hmm. Could be mm -hmm. who knows why. I mean, there's a lot of thinking about why Satoshi chose 21 million. Um I, I would I could point you to some Twitter threads on it and whatnot, but I I not haven't been on down into that rabbit hole too much. I would just say the magic magic of the magic number 21 million is that it doesn't change. Yeah. So I guess my question about decentralization becomes a question about freedom. And in the in the Marxist circles, I hear them, they also care about freedom, or at least claim to. Right. And and so it seems like everyone is just pursuing freedom. But then to me, I don't know if freedom is what we like, well, how far does freedom go? Because you have skin, now that's a, a form of a border. You mm. have constraints on you with the laws of physics and, and you want those there. You were taught a language. And so you didn't choose to, firstly to be born, secondly, to learn the values you learned, to learn the language that you learned. And so there is a, a form of tyranny of parenting and then there's the laissez-faire kind of parenting, and, and I don't like to be around those children, and I'm sure most people don't, including the parents, but that's that's because people are have this need or have this have this philosophy that, no, I don't want to impose because I don't like when the government imposes, but then they constantly think about it in terms of government. So I'm, I'm just curious, well, like, how far does this freedom, does this, <clears throat> do we not need constraints? Jordan Peterson, I'm sure, talks about this with order and chaos. You need both. Ian McGilchrist talks right. about this there needs to be some constraint as well yeah and we have. unbridled freedom is not something it's we have little ideas to what what the heck unbridled freedom looks like mm, yeah and so i guess even if you're on an island and it's just you there's still manifold restrictions with with your body with other animals with yes. so what level and type of confinement is okay yeah. i don't know yeah so the fundamental constraints that none of us know how to throw off really or like thermodynamics right gravity sure. earth's gravity every every organism's survival strategy is adapted to earth's gravity on earth obviously when we build cars and buildings they're designed to stay there's designed to have structural yeah, integrity I, I in earth's gravity yeah. so there are certain restraints. So I guess the question is what additional man-made restraints should we be placing on ourselves? And um, the Rothbardian argument, this is a very strong argument made from the libertarian philosophy, the school of libertarian philosophy. I'm thinking of his book in particular, The Ethics of Liberty, is that the boundaries should be private property. Now you have to understand what property means. It basically means most fundamentally you own yourself you own your own body and then the things you go into the world and justly acquire by extension mm -hmm. your own individual self-ownership become yours so when we talk about increasing freedom um i think that is the natural limiting principle is it you want everyone to have maximal freedom to do whatever they want with the limiting principle of other people's person and property right like i should go into the world and accumulate whatever value I need so long as I don't hurt anyone or steal from anyone. And that mm -hmm. process, if you honor that boundary of, of private property, the interesting thing about that is that it creates more freedom defined mm -hmm, as mm -hmm, mm -hmm. opening up of option space. So the guy that's on the desert Island, there's a certain things he can't do, right? If he's just there with only his body, he can't 
really leave the island. He doesn't have a boat or an aircraft. Uh, he can only pick fruit with his hands. He doesn't have tools and whatnot. But what can you do? He can delay gratification, right? Spend less time consuming fish, more time building a fishing rod. And then the next thing you know, he's economized fish production, right? He can catch more fish per hour with a rod than he does with his hands. And then he can spend a bit more time building a boat. And all of a sudden he's increasing his option space into how far out to sea he can go. Maybe he can eventually leave the island. And so it's that process, that capitalistic process that creates more freedom in the world, creates more options. For the Marxists out there, I would again point to uh, the Mises critique of socialism. That they basically prove that socialism doesn't work because it doesn't produce price signals. So we can't allocate capital intelligently. And it, that's why it degenerates into this game of just statist rhetoric and nonsense. And ultimately, I would think mass murder again. Um, we're all just animals trying to do the best with the assets at hand. And if you don't have a price signal and property rights to allocate these things intelligently and nonviolently, then whatever system you build on top of it degenerates is my my view on that. Man, I have many philosophical questions, but I think like we should save it for yeah. when you come on my podcast. Yes, I need to ask you some more questions though. Uh, well, that's fine. I, I, I enjoy this. Well, like here's just some thoughts and maybe I could put them in your brain for for you to think about if you haven't thought about them, which I'm sure you have. The, so, so it sounds like, okay, well, I want to maximize my freedom today to the degree that it allows me to quote unquote, go far, like you mentioned before. So maximize future freedom. Mm -hmm. So somehow you, okay. But then how far does that go? How far? Like what the heck does this extreme freedom? Well, we don't want freedom from the physical laws of nature. Well, then also what's the difference between you and a law of nature? Is there a separate separation? There's this great conversation with this, well, by this mathematician named Raymond Smullyan. So people can look this up. Raymond Smullyan, I, I have a car, I basically read it, read it aloud on my channel. And it's Raymond Smullyan. It's a conversation between man and God. And the man is saying to God, why did you give me freedom? I, 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 I find this to be a huge imposition because I, I have this huge moral weight to do to do good and it's not easy to do good and it's impossible to do 100% good. So please remove my freedom. And then God's like, well, why don't I remove your the feelings of badness that you have, like the guilt? Then, then the guy's like, he thinks about it. He's like, well, if you remove that, then I may commit atrocities in the future and myself now would be responsible for those future atrocities because I'm removing my, my guilt center. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so then... So I'm just mad at you for giving me freedom to begin with. And then it's this whole conversation of back. It's like a dialogue, like Plato back mm. and forth between a man and God. And it's, it's so playful. Raymond Smullyan's this great writer. He's dead now. It's one of the people I would like to interview who I can't, but, but it's, it's, it then becomes all about, well, the, the distinction between you and natural law and what is free will and what is God and what is goodness. And is there sin? And, and it's, this is why when I, when I read your description, if I'm recalling it correctly, I liked it because it said something like, I explore what is money and the rabbit hole that that entails, something yeah. along the lines yeah, of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I think 
that that if you explore almost any phenomenon, so for instance, these headphones or this bliss tech here, bliss yeah. text, it's a chapstick. That if you explore it and you try to understand it completely, it leads you to virtually every other question. Hmm. You see this in science, where if you want to learn about a butterfly's brain, you need to learn about a lizard's brain, and then you need to learn about evolution, and you need to learn about the whole phylogenetic tree to, to well, not the whole, but maybe the whole, if you want to learn about or put out a thesis on a butterfly's brain. So then, I, then it's just, it's it's extremely interesting because I was speaking to someone named Chloe Valdry. Do you know who that is? Chloe Valdry? No. Okay, well, anyway. She's more of the consciousness, Zen, mindfulness, Eastern type, mm -hmm. who was saying, Kurt, I don't like your analytical approach with, with Toe because it's not going to lead you to answers. There, You can't have an, an, an analytical answer to an experiential problem. Mm. And I, I think that that's the case. And I also don't think that what I'm doing with Toe is just analytical. I think that there's something about this format, Robert, both, with both you and I, and, and you and your guests and me and my guests that is necessarily propositional because we're just speaking mm -hmm. and, and it's not like you can have a room full of people and then meditate with them. Mm -hmm. But off air, I'm sure you do plenty of experiential work and same with myself. So it's not as if I'm not exploring experientially, but then I also wonder how much of that's true. Cantor, for instance, thought he was analyzing the mind of God by analyzing infinity mathematically. Mm -hmm. and, and there are many other historically people thought that studying physics was the same as studying god and that's one of the reasons why there's so right. much writings about god from newton he thought he and, and that's one of the reasons why there's order to the universe at all why why we can do science because god made it intelligible at least this is their view yes oh so so yeah so is, did you also feel this to be the case that if we were to study anything we incorporate everything okay yes well, man so much good stuff there um, I think it was the physicist Brome that described reality as the unbroken wholeness. So hmm. it's, it's in everything touches everything else, right? It's, it's continuous throughout, hmm. but we as rational beings use language and thought to kind of draw boxes around things. And we turn hmm. a, a, a perception into a conception and hmm. then, so then, you know, so to go from rock to the idea of a rock, and then we create a language that's established on, it's our consensus of understanding. So when I create this sound with my mouth, it says rock. It's like, I can reliably presume you're running the same open source software called English that it conjures up roughly the same image that I had in my mind. Right. So um, it's interesting that we, it's like, I've said this a number of ways. Reality is like a stack of patterns on patterns on patterns that rhyme, but don't repeat. Or you could look at it as like an ocean with no shore and no surface, that the whole thing is just this continual fluid yeah. body that's wholly interconnected. But to navigate it, we have to map it, right? And we have to map it with these, uh, with, with concepts and conceptions and, and groupings and ideas, um, which we then, you know, obviously it's it's a it's an abstraction away from reality, like when you convert uh, an experience into something linguistic. But the linguistics, and paradoxically, perhaps somehow let you navigate that reality more efficiently, effectively, et cetera, over time, right? It lets you build uh, a whatever, a better boat, a car, jet, spaceship, whatever it may be. So um, there is something really fascinating about that. And it is 
divine in a way, I guess, in that we were sort of, you know, if, if the idea of God as the creator, whatever words you want to insert there, nature, the universe, whatever that creative force is that made all this, we kind of participate in that to some extent, because we, we know that we can create new tools and new ideas, new languages, et cetera, that actually influence our own evolutionary path. All right. We mentioned this earlier, just the, the idea of private property. That's not a thing that doesn't exist anywhere. It's this uh, game that we've kind of imagined. Yet if we pretend it's true, if we pretend everyone has, everyone owns themselves and everyone has rights to the fruit of their own labor, then we create this very pragmatic outcome of more wealth in the world so that's interesting to me that it's we kind of we're kind of like the animal the animal that plays imagination but the imaginal play that we engage in has very real consequences um this is where i'm not sure so i don't know if private property is just some just a social construct i don't know if there's something like the platonic forms which is mathematical before any idea or any conception so it exists it's just not in the way that we think of existence and then also i don't know if i i i don't know if i know it's said so frequently in the modern and perhaps even ancient eastern side that it's non-dualism is what you're at least intimating mm -hmm. or at least at least uh, insinuating sorry I, I I wonder how much of that is strangely a left brain phenomenon on something that's a right brain issue. So what I mean by that is it sounds like, hey, you know, what are you talking about? Like the left brain is the analytical one. We're the more creative types who are the ones that are in touch with consciousness and we could see the the undivided, the undividedness of nature. Mm. I don't know. I I know that Ian McGilchrist says that the left brain likes to categorize and place as holes everything and see everything as the same. Mm. Whereas the right brain, the creative one, is actually the one that likes to make distinctions and see this as different. And I, I just don't, I don't know. I, I, I've had experiences of, of oneness. I've also had many experiences of dividedness. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of it is, is, hmm. see, the, the metaphysically i think the next number up from one is not two it's three and the reason is that if you have a vertex then if you add another vertex it doesn't mean anything to this vertex unless there's a connection mm. so as soon as you have one as soon as you have two and then the connection then you have three objects you have two vertices and one edge mm -hmm. or or just a single vertice so i wonder how much of 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 reality is a threeness or even more and, and and we're just we're saying it's undivided that's the wrong way of saying it and we're saying it's it's both undivided and not and that's that's wrong but then am i perverting every metaphysical claim with my language is just abandonment of language the route well that's what some monks say like just just stop it's it's even a sin to speak or at least a sin to, to be curious and speak about these large issues i don't know I, i've had feelings of, of each way and i i'm constantly you asked, I think you asked me, like, what have I learned from this podcast? I, 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 I've just learned to, like, try to go with the waves. And geez, that, that's not easy because I want to swim upward and, and breathe. So sometimes I'm, I'm like, uh, sometimes I gasp, but, I, but I'm just being tumbled and tumbled in, in a whirlpool. 
Descartes had a quote about this too. Anyway, it's fascinating. Yeah, I, I I don't have a don't have a question there, but it's it's essentially just saying like I I wish I had the the same worldview or same certainty as other people. I just well, don't know. I agree with you about. Yeah, and I don't see it as by the way I don't see it as a virtue to to be like the Socr the Socratic like not knowing. I think that there's I think it's it's healthy to have to have a a certain amount of close mindedness and maybe that's even harkens back to what I was saying about constraints as well as openness. You need that otherwise you'll just dissolve yeah. in a pool. You're right. Yeah, yeah. You I think Chesterton said don't be so open minded that your brains fall out everywhere. Mm -hmm. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor Crowd Health. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian Chris Rock. Insurance. You got to have some insurance. You got to. There's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. Like I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. Wasabi lets you use Bitcoin privately while still maintaining full control over your money. Specifically, Wasabi Wallet is an open source, non-custodial wallet with privacy built in by default. By using Wasabi, you're effectively putting the private back in private property. Wasabi Wallet is an easy to use privacy wallet that can support any amount of Bitcoin transactions. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art wallet software. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Swan Private. Swan Private is a concierge financial services firm based in Los Angeles. Now, I've known the Swan team for years, and these guys are laser-focused on the Bitcoin mission. They even have a zero-tolerance policy for all shitcoining. Recently, their CEO, Corey Clipston, was instrumental in calling out many of these crypto scams right before they collapsed, saving a lot of people a lot of money in the process. Swan Private focuses on guiding high net worth individuals and businesses on all aspects of Bitcoin strategy, including buying, custodying, and market research. This concierge service provides you direct access to a private advisor by text, phone, or email. So go to swanprivate.com slash breedlove today to sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Bitcoin Conference 2023. This is going to be a three-day event held May 18th through 20th, 2023 in Miami, Florida. This is going to be the biggest Bitcoin event of the year, and the past two years in Miami have been simply amazing. Speakers already announced for 2023 include Michael Saylor, Alex Gladstein, Corey Clipston, and many others. Last year, we did a 10 million sats giveaway specifically for this event, and we're going to do it again this year. So, to get discounted tickets and enter for a chance to win 10 million sats, go to b.tc slash conference slash 2023 
and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Masterworks. Masterworks gives you access to the fine art market at more affordable price points. They do this by offering you fractional shares in their $500 million portfolio of fine art. Now, fine art is an alternative asset class, and historically, it's been a great performer and a really good hedge against inflation. Most investors typically hold anywhere from 2 to 10% of their assets in an asset like fine art. To sign up or learn more, go to masterworks.com and use promo code BREEDLOVE. Now, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now, when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, a multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. And it always comes back to me, comes back for me to that relational aspect. You know, Peterson calls it order and chaos. Um, obviously, I did this long series on metaphysics. Um, it was it was about the book Leela by Robert Persig. But he's making the point that subject object is kind of a false paradigm, that there's really this betweenness that is more um, a higher resolution depiction of reality, if you will. Uh, John, I've talked to John Verveke a lot about this, too. He, he says rather than subjectivity or objectivity, the betweenness is transjectivity. Uh, it, yeah, it's like there's this infinite complex system around us called reality. And then we're trying to generate different knowledge structures to map portions of it and communicate about it. But we have to take all of those, I call these like a symbolic structure, if you will. And this could be anything. This could be a theory. This could be, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. This could be a company. These are all just symbolic structures we've created to help us do something practical with that reality, to navigate it or, or understand it or talk about it. But we have to always understand that those symbolic structures are provisional, right? They're subject to change. Um, you know, Newton gave us certain laws that made a lot of sense for a long time and let us accomplish practical things in the real world. But eventually those laws were proven to be insufficient to, to be a, a deeper descriptor of reality, right? As when Einstein came along, for instance. So... I guess that's the way I look at it overall now. It's not, I'm not saying the only thing I know is I know nothing at all. Knowledge serves no purpose, but I think Aristotle said the purpose of knowledge is not knowledge, it's action, right? So that these uh -huh. structures we create need to ground out in some practical change in how we engage with the world. Otherwise, they're not useful. And then we also have to understand, and in that way, I would kind of think my based on all that i kind of think maybe we can't have a theory of everything like yeah. you could maybe keep reaching and always have a theory of everything but i don't know that we'll ever hit the bottom and be like oh this is it this piece of knowledge encodes everything about reality i don't know that that's even possible 
Yeah, I agree. And there's some, there are some mathematical reasons why that's not the case. I'm sure you've heard of Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the question is, well, if physics is embedded in math and math is incomplete, then is the whole physical enterprise, a, a sorry, the whole theory of everything enterprise, a doomed one? Well, 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 maybe we. That's why I think even defining what a theory of everything is 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 a treacherous endeavor because maybe we just want a theory of most and that's <laughs> and and that's and that's good enough and, and that's, that's what or or we want well, well who knows man who knows i i am so torn i i i oscillate so frequently on this who's, well by the way who's someone okay sorry yeah no go ahead who okay i'll state this but if what you were going to say was more important then please go who is someone historically that you would like to have interviewed like on your top two or three list oh, that, that i have not interviewed yet. yeah that, that, that that's dead that's no longer around oh that's dead wow well mises right off the bat um you know the most profound writer and thinker in, in austrian economics as far as i can tell i mean there's a lot mm. but he's really really stands out to me plato i mean that guy's after going through I went through the Republic recently with John Verveke and this other book. Yeah, Plato's super interesting thinker. I would love, love to have talked to. Um, I would love to have talked with Jesus of Nazareth. Man. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, those are three for me. Who? What about you? I, I, I don't, I don't know. I was gonna say Jesus is number one, but I didn't even think about this until I, until I asked. So I need to think about this some more. John, John von Neumann, he's a, ah, he's was yeah. a mathematician. Or, oh, he, never mind. I thought it was, I was thinking of a different Neumann. So von, von Neumann, you may have heard of von Neumann machines, which is the, the idea that there can be extraterrestrials that send out probes and those probes self-replicate and it just happens ad infinitum. And mm. then that's maybe what we're seeing when we see Tic Tacs in the sky. Those are von Neumann probes, I believe they're called. And von Neumann was just apparently he was he may have been the quickest like the highest IQ person to ever have lived wow there's there are stories about and and he died so young too like 55 or 50 mm -hmm. there's a there's a famous okay I'll, I'll give a brief aside there's a the a fly the fly math the math problem of the fly okay so so let's imagine you have two cars and they're going at e going toward each other at 50 miles per hour each. Okay. Okay. They're initially, let's say 50 miles apart or let's say, let's say, let's, okay. Let's say hundred miles apart. Okay. Mm -hmm. So they're hundred miles apart going at each other at 50 miles per hour. Then there's a fly who is at the tip of, of one of these cars mm -hmm. and he deftly moves at 200 miles per hour like quick 200 but this is important 200 miles per hour like from this from the tip of this guy's car to the next one as soon as he hits the next one he goes to this one but then this the initial one has traveled some bit so mm -hmm. then he goes to the next one and that one has traveled a bit and mm -hmm. until the cars crash mm -hmm. then the question is well how far did the fly travel okay so the you can do this infinite series where you plus and then you 
well, you have an infinite series and it's a difficult one to compute. You have to use pen and paper. Mm-hmm. Or you can realize that there's a trick. Okay, these cars are coming at each other at 50, at 50 miles per hour. That's akin to, to one of them standing still and the other going at 100 miles per hour. How far were they initially? 100 miles apart. Okay, so it takes them one hour to collide. This fly travels at 200 miles per hour. So mm-hmm. then it's only traveled for one hour. So it's traveled 200 miles. Hmm. So th- there's a trick. Okay, so someone said this to von Neumann. And then von Neumann said, almost like in, in two seconds, he's like, okay, 200. The answer is 200. They're like, oh, you know this trick. And then he's like, what trick? I just summed the infinite series. And they're like, oh, gosh. <laughs> jeez. jeez, jeez, jeez. People would say they'd be working on problems for like weeks or days, and he would come in and just offhandedly say the answer. Right. So he's someone I would just like to to speak to. Well, that's funny that the heuristic, you could maybe make it even simpler in that, you know, the cars were traveling for one hour, you know, the fly goes 200 miles an hour. Right, right. Went yeah. 200 miles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's that's incredible. It's just, it's just hilarious that he's like, I can oh, see just that infinite it. series in my mind, but there's no way I could ever sum that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, I, well, and then, and then as for a third person, I don't know. I don't know. So what about, so of guests that you've had, are there any particular conversations that really stand out to you that that I don't know have been especially popular or impactful for you personally? Yeah, I think most of them are, and that that it, it's more difficult. Like there are just a few that haven't been, so mm. it's it's easier to for me to point out that these ones were just humdrum conversations. But then mm. that's rude for me to say like right, oh, right, yeah, right. these five people. Yeah. So I don't I don't know I don't know how to I just say most of them are. How about for you? Do you find that almost each one is extremely impactful or are there just a few? Well, there's so, I mean, it spans, it's a wide spectrum for me, but again, I'm trying to have conversations that are fascinating. Um, Sometimes, like, especially when we get into the political dimensions of Bitcoin, I'm less, I'm just less engaged politically. I'm not, Mm -hmm. I kind of think. Now, why is that? Well, the way I see it is... So what do we have in pol? And you have to be clear with your definition of politics. Um, one definition is it's kind of like the ethics of distributed cognition. So we have we're solving a lot of problems in the world through by connecting our minds to other people. You know, a lot of this is the marketplace itself. The, there's an argument to be made. Well, okay, that distributed computing system needs an ethical component, obviously, to be you know to serve humans. Um, so if you mean politics in that sense, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Like, yeah, of course we need ethical systems, you know, legal systems and whatnot, but the overemphasis on the political dimensions of our characters individually and collectively, uh, I, this idea that, you know, your views and my views are different. So we need to go like shout it out on Twitter to try and, Mm. have one of us emerge victorious to then create the rules that the rest of us need to follow Mm. i think that is a product of the fiat currency complex like we're trying to get way too many competing interests under one umbrella whereas in reality these people should just live in separate states they should just you should have more optionality in terms of uh locating yourself within within a jurisdiction but the reason we don't have that is because of 
federal government o- overgrowth, which is rooted in the corruption of money itself, that, that we can keep printing more money uh, to fund these programs that otherwise could not exist. So that's why I'm not, I, like, I think in a Bitcoinized world, and this is a whole rabbit hole conversation, we move from a world, today we have like almost 200 nation states. I think we move mm. into a world that has something more like 20,000 free mm. private cities or something like that that you can live within. So then in that world, why would people be arguing over whatever topic, abortion rights? You just wouldn't do it. You would just move to the place that's aligned with your values. And that would be that, right? You wouldn't need to be on Twitter having arguments about this stuff. You would just move, <laughs> vote with your wallet or, or vote with your feet. So, Have people said you need to have on more socialists or more marxist uh no i've i i should talk to some because what i've never heard a socialist or marxist do is refute the the austrian argument that you can't compute price signals so if you can't do that then how how do you allocate capital yes i've never heard even a slightly viable response to that question um instead it just spins off into these epic fantasies of you know if i was the one in charge i could somehow make the socialist utopia a reality we never had real socialism before but i think that is just hubristic to the maximum yeah you're somehow the special individual that can solve the human organizational problem that no one's ever been able to solve by yeah you know concentrating power into the hands of a few just don't think that works yeah though interestingly enough there are some anarchist socialists so for instance well anarchist syndicist or syndicalist is chomsky and i remember so someone that i know i'll i'll try and tiptoe around this someone i know closely is as radical left like to it uses the term radical left so i'm not disparaging mm-hmm. as you can be and she was saying yeah no you ha- it has to be anarchistic like the the whole our whole enterprises has to be anarchistic. And I was thinking, how the heck, what are you talking about? As far as I know, it's all, it's all, it starts with a larger government or it starts by you petitioning to the government to do so-and-so. So if you're anarchistic, shouldn't you be reeling from that and align yourself a bit more with the libertarians? So I, I don't know, but I haven't studied this much. And when I put out on Twitter, I said, I, w- I would like to do a podcast on, on the potential of a large upcoming recession slash crash and what that even means and what to do about it practically what to do about it for people who are of the the 99% and so on they said someone said yeah but are you going to get on someone who challenges this capitalistic system and and what i think is much of the time they have this idea of a capitalist who if they were to speak to that capitalist would say we don't have a capitalist system I right. like right. you're telling you're telling me that I like the status quo. I don't like what's going. No one, they they have this idea, but then the, also the capitalists have this idea of what a socialist is, and then you have people like Richard Wolff who said that's not like me, and, and here's actually what I believe. Uh, so it's it's all so complex, and I'm just like here with my pen and paper, and just like give me some, let me stick to the partition function and uh-huh. and uh-huh. and Wilson loops and so on. It's much more simple. At least it's much more simple in terms of these these are variables I can control. Yes. Yeah. Well, I try and transcend that debate by just talking about statism 
versus i've been calling it sovereignism like you could historically call this capitalism just pure capitalism but we've never had that there's never been pure capitalism because capitalism basically means it's life liberty and property right you you own yourself you go out into the world and create things that a value that you also own other people do the same thing and then you trade with people to create more wealth but the problem is that violence and theft has always been a viable wealth acquisition strategy so you can never have that idealized world so long as there's any form of violence or coercion and so i think the real trick in the world is to create systems that make violating property rights more expensive and mm. if you make it more expensive then you're making you know theft and violence a less viable wealth acquisition strategy and that leaves people, the only other option that leaves people with then is long-term trade, cooperation, innovation, all these things that we engage, these modes of engagement that are consensual versus uh, non-consensual, like, you know, taxation, theft, war, all these things are non-consensual forms of exchange. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm very partial to the capitalist that would say, no, this is not a capitalistic system, because if you understand what a central bank is, the central bank is an anti-capitalistic organization. It it is does not emerge on the free market, right? It's forcefully mm -hmm. inserted by uh, the monopolist on violence, which is the state, and it's used to control monetary policy, which is the same thing as saying it's used to steal from people. It's used to steal from people through inflation. So, anyone that says this is late stage capitalism doesn't understand central banking at all. Uh, central banking actually comes straight out of Marx's 1848 manifesto to the Communist Party. It's measure number five, centralized state monopoly over cash and credit. It's not capitalistic, does not emerge on the free market. No one consensually accepts it. Um, so, yeah, this is not, we've never seen, and I, I hate to say this because it's the same argument socialists use. When I say we've never had pure capitalism in the world, the socialist world. Right, exactly. We've had pure socialism. That's what so it reminds me of. We've had <laughs> enough socialism to know that price signals can't be generated. Capital cannot be allocated intelligently. And then you're left with just might is right, basically. Hmm. That's what socialism devolves into. It's It doesn't have the distributed computing and allocation capabilities that capitalism does. But to throw, but capitalism has been so beat up that term, you can't use it or you get into this endless dance so i try to just i've been writing this series called sovereignism where i'm like you just honor the life liberty property of the individual and then let everyone else self-organize so you never bring coercion to bear other than to protect life liberty and property and this is not a new idea this is this was what king john signed in 1215 when he signed the magna carta they said life liberty inviolable property this is the scope of government anything beyond this is is nonsense for government to to be involved with so um yeah it's extremely complex extremely complex and it gets into the economics of violence and force really it's like we're it's physics ultimately if if you can project power physical power in a certain way to to steal someone else's wealth then you're going to do that right that's what states do that's what that's what militaries are. Um, inversely, if you can make it really hard to take someone's wealth by force, 
then you we pour ourselves into a new incentive schema where the way to the best way to acquire wealth is through trade and cooperation. So I hope, and the big hope of Bitcoin is that it pushes the world in that direction because it's very expensive to steal Bitcoin. Ah, uh, aha. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's what you meant by make it expensive. And and do you synonymize making it expensive with a disincentive, or a disincentive is more broad because that can include violence. Well. Uh, making something expensive is a disincentive to use it or an incentive to use substitutes, right? Right, right, right. right. So I'm saying is disincentive. So you don't use the word disincentive because the word disincentive is broader than making it expensive. Expensive implies disincentive, but disincentive yes. doesn't imply. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There are different types of disincentives other than cost, but you could also put it all under the rubric of risk, you know? make it risky mm -hmm. to violate property that's in terms of you it's either going to cost you more or you might there might be retribution you might get hurt or it might backfire or whatever it is so making property more risky to violate is a big push for humans towards productive cooperative behavior and away from destructive behavior mm-hmm I don't like, well, not that I don't like, but I have issues when people say everything is political and that tends to come from the activist side. I, I don't hear it much on the, on the activist right side. I hear it on the activist left side, though maybe they say just as much. And I, well, the, so the last thing I'll say about the politics is what I see in the sure. world is a lot of people yelling and fighting amongst themselves, but what are they like, zoom it all the way out. What are they doing? They're saying, I think these rules should be the rules in play. And I think I think that's yeah. Okay. I think Continue. the money that the state is stealing through taxation and inflation should be used to fund the imposition of these rules on others. So if you're like, okay, wait a minute. If mm -hmm, what should mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. happen in that situation is the people you're trying to impose rules on, they should just fork off and be their own other society. Right. Then you don't have the cost of enforcing these rules and there's nothing there's no political dispute to be had. So that's like it's kind of a radical vision of the future because we've never had something like Bitcoin to get us to that world of, of very high consent and very low coercion. But mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a vision that I'm, I'm just trying to help energize and animate through these conversations. Is there a connection between cryptocurrency, not Bitcoin in particular, but cryptocurrency? and consciousness or physics well uh i look at all cryptos that are not bitcoin as basically a scam uh okay then choose bitcoin it, do, it doesn't matter to me i just want to know is there, is there, is there a, a connection between bitcoin and consciousness and the reason is that i i would like to learn more about cryptocurrencies and explore it on the podcast but i have such i have such a, a, a let's paradoxically call it a narrow view of a theory of everything so like I'm narrowly focused on everything. And, and so that means that I I I spend all my almost all my time thinking about well, what are the different toes and how do they relate and consciousness and so on. That if I'm to investigate Bitcoin in particular on the podcast, it would need to be, it would need to have some direct, maybe even causal relationship with consciousness. And it does math, it does have a relationship with math clearly because it's based in math but also physics like like is there something about the laws of physics or the way that crypto cryptocurrencies work that 
that can be used as a machine learning model for the way that the universe may have began. And okay, I don't know. So you understand? You understand? No, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's a hard question for me. I think consciousness is one of the most mysterious words there is. Like I, we as a species don't seem to have much idea what it is. I have no clue, frankly. But what I, the way I will try to answer your question is money is at least a really important perceptual apparatus, right? I've, I've brought up the term price signals a lot, but we think through money, right? Mm. It's almost like we when you see, and this is stock markets, right? You're looking at the prices of things changing. You don't know the story behind that. You don't know the natural disasters or the new production ah. facilities or the new trade agreements yes. that led to that price. All you know is the price. And you know, often in markets, they say price is truth. So it's mm. like the ultimate economic telecommunications device, the pricing system. And this is, again, what allocates capital intelligently in a capitalistic marketplace, a thing that socialism cannot do. Well, all of that communication is occurring through money, right? We're speaking through dollars or whatever currency it is. So I don't know that there's a relationship between money and consciousness per se, but there's at least one between money and perception. Like it radically, it lets us see the world through the eyes of others. Yeah. And there's a, see one there may be a relationship between perception and, and, and reality. Yes. So. so everyone involved with the, the cotton price goes up $2. I, that's interesting seeing the world through all the eyes of cotton producers and consumers and where they're where the market is clearing between them and that's uh -huh. a very that's extremely interesting data compression mechanism right you can see yeah. the eyes of so many people in one number uh-huh uh -huh. okay so when when you say price i'm translating in my head to worth but you're you, you uh, say no so don't price is an exchange ratio so instead of saying this house costs 11 cars, right? Because everything trades at some ratio of everything else. You say mm -hmm. house is $440,000 mm -hmm. equal to 11 of these $40,000 cars. So it's money is like a, an a economic language of, of numeracy, right? A common economic language of numeracy in a way. And so instead of okay. all these ratios, like how many chairs is a house cost and house is a car cost you just say the price and money and it's easier to perform economic calculation okay okay i don't think i should have used the word worth what i meant was where should one spend their attention spend as soon as you say the word spend then mm -hmm. you think of it as a commodity as soon as you think of it as that you think of it as something with a number and that some are valued higher so you think of it on a on a and an ordered number line number line so something with a with an echelon, so then you can decide what's well. You pay attention to some things and not others, and that's influenced by by price. Is that I I need to I need to work through this, but it's extremely interesting. I never thought about that before. Yeah, no, about how price influences perception. But perception to me, I okay, I'm not convinced of this, but there's there are arguments, convincing arguments or so let's say potentially convincing arguments that there's a relationship between perception and reality. There's certainly a relationship between per per perception and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so I, 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 I'm, I, I, that's my huge, like, thank you for giving me that man. Oh, happy to do it. Um, and there's, it's again, it, there's, 
reciprocal feedback though because all this this distillation of market actions gets compressed into the price but then the price is also informing all those market actors what to do right right right, right? Yeah. so if yeah. the price is up then i'm going to consume less produce more and vice versa if it's down so it's this feedback you're talking about centralization decentralization earlier it's like everything centralizes to the price but then it informs the decentralized actions of of all those market participants okay and so it's really it's just like a never ending feedback loop i guess uh-huh and it, that's probably how cognition works in some way i'm not you know i'm not super familiar on this but it again i would call that distributed cognition right you've got yeah. a bunch of minds interconnected by the price signal and they're mm -hmm. moving in concert based on how that price moves. So it's you've wired together a distributed cognitive network. I would imagine the individual cognitive network works some, in some way similar to that. We um, also we, we certainly sexual selection works like that. Have you heard of assortative dating? No. Sorry. Yes, it's called assortative dating. But the but the the studies on it where you put a number on your head and no one knows their own number, but they're mm -hmm. all looking at each other. You, you've seen, you've seen studies like That's this or you've heard of this. Fun. Okay. So you get people in a room and general, and you say like, who do you want to make out with something like that? Like choose a partner that you're willing to make out with. We're not going to get you to make out with them, but choose someone you're willing to make out with. Generally the people who are best looking pair up with one another. And then, the, and then it, it just goes down to the worst looking people or what we think of as the worst looking people. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you say now, do the same, except you have a number on your head. It's it's either one to 10. You don't know which one yours is, but you can see everyone else's. Mm -hmm. Then then even if you're a 10 physically, if your number is three, you look at someone else and, and, and you're able to judge unconsciously the way that they look at you and, and someone else who, oh, essentially someone else who is a, is a 10 would look at you as a three and not want to join you somehow they unconsciously know their own number and then they pair up with numbers that match each other even though you don't know your own number wow okay well well so they know and, so and the reason i was saying that i forget there's there's a point to this oh, okay well well anyway the the fact that you're evaluated as a number and then that has such meaning then means that well price is well there's a, there's a relationship between price and value. I know that you, you didn't want to say price and worth, and but there is a relationship. No, there there is, I, there is. There is. So Austrian economists would say that all value, the process of valuation, it's always a matter of where basically you have a preference for something, right? Here's the first thing you want, the second thing you want, the third thing you want. So there's they are ordinal, right? These are... you. You have like a best friend, a second best friend, a third best friend. It doesn't make sense to be like, this best friend is 75 points more than my second best friend. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Oh, I see, I see. Right? Yeah. Whereas the world of cardinal numbers, like something in pricing, is something you can compare and say, this is $50, mm -hmm, $5. Mm -hmm. It's not ordinal. So the pricing system is converting ordinal value expression into a cardinal numeral system. Mm -hmm. And so that's very useful that you're, you're kind of converting qualitative, something qualitative, right? Which is just preference into something that's quantitative, which is a price. And so it lets us engage in this distributed compute um, model we call the, the free market. 
Okay, man. I gotta get going. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, I appreciate you spending so much time with me. Yeah. And inviting I, me on. I appreciate the conversation too. Do you have time for one more? Or should you jump off now? Sure. No, I have time for one more. Okay. I have time for, I have another six minutes or so. Okay. So we'll just leave it with one big question here. Is there a guest or conversation that took you down an unexpected path that you are currently going down? And if so, what is that path? Um, what I guess yeah. thinking about a lot uh, recently from the show. Yeah. Like I mentioned there, it's, it's easier for me to find people who were dull than that were engaging, but the last two, so Ian McGilchrist and Tim Maudlin. So Tim Maudlin, I talked to him about interpretations of quantum mechanics and that made me, he doesn't call, it's interesting. He doesn't call what physicists study in undergrad or graduate studies or even PhD level. He doesn't call that quantum theory. He calls that quantum mechanics or quantum field theory, but he doesn't like to use the word theory because to him, theory means that you have to know what you're talking about. It's not just the mathematical description. You need to have an ontology as well or show how this math relates to what is. Mm -hmm. So that's why he includes, as soon as you have an interpretation of quantum mechanics on top of quantum mechanics, then you have a quantum theory. Mm -hmm. At least this is his terminology. And Okay, so that's interesting. And I personally, I, I like mathematics and I think that much can be gleaned from, from the, well, not much, plenty can be gleaned from the mathematics to the interpretation. Speaking with him, I'm less certain about that. And I'm much more interested now in, in interpretations of quantum mechanics. And so maybe I'll, I'll, I'll dedicate an entire section of the book to interpretations of quantum mechanics because I'd like to understand them more. And okay, so that's a rabbit hole I'm going down that I I thought I had explored, but I I'm I'm realizing it was vacuous. So I'm interested in that. Then with Ian McGilchrist, well, just he just bangs on all cylinders of mine, consciousness, philosophy. Well, see, I think that that uh there are these people who label themselves as skeptics and i think that i, I don't think you should label yourself as i as a skeptic i think that you should be a an open-minded investigator of 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 what is and not a skeptic and it, that includes some some paradigm agnostic inquiries to you're you're open to other definitions of what is is mm -hmm. so sometimes they have these self-evident truths I, I i don't think being or what is is simple and also when people talk about god i'm super interested in in different definitions of god mm -hmm. and i i happen to think that whenever anyone says god is so-and-so like they come up with a definition i think it's false i have i think that anything that you place into that blank of god is so-and-so will automatically demean it. And it's like akin to constructing an idol. But anyway, so Ian McGilchrist banks on all of those cylinders. And I'm I'm just, I, I'm wrestling with those. It's super, super fun. It's, and it's super destabilizing as well. So it's not fun. Jeez, like, jeez. Fun yeah. and not fun. <laughs> no, yeah, it's not good, fun. Good paradox. It's, it's fun. Right, right, right. 
okay. Well, I want to tell you one more paradox, if you don't yes, mind. Yes, please. It's just one that I, I heard the other day, and I thought, this is super fun. So it's called, I don't know what it's called, like the surprise paradox. Mm. So it goes like, a teacher says, there's going to be a surprise test. You will be surprised. That's the condition. And and it's like it's a it's a school teacher, so it's Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, not the weekend. Okay, so that and it's next week. You're gonna be surprised next week. There's a test coming up. So the students then confer with each other. They're like, oh shoot, when 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 is it gonna be? They think, you know what? If it is going to be a surprise, it can't be Friday. Why? Because by Thursday evening, if we hadn't had the test, we know it's tomorrow. Mm. So we're certain it's tomorrow. It's no longer a surprise. Mm. Okay, now we've ruled out Friday. By that same logic, we can rule out Thursday. Mm. And then by the same logic, we can rule out Wednesday. By the same logic, we can rule out Tuesday. By the same logic, we can rule out Monday. There's not going to be a surprise test next week. It's impossible. <laughs> then the teacher comes. So that's already interesting. But then the teacher comes. And at noon on Wednesday, they get a test. And she's like, surprise. So everything the teacher said came true. There was a surprise test. Because mm -hmm. they had ruled out the fact that there would be a surprise. And the question is, well, how is this all possible? Like, wh where's the flaw in this logic? And this apparently has been debated again for decades and decades. It's something that I that I am thinking about too. So that's, so that's what I'm thinking about. So there's something about expectation in these paradox. And the last example, I think, too, you gave, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, it's quite the trip to think about, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's the the, the, the liar's paradox. Like this sentence is false. Right. It's true. If it's true, it's false. Right. It's like analogize that to Pinocchio's nose. Like he says, my nose grows now. Yeah. Well, if he's, if he's lying, then his nose wouldn't grow. But then if his nose is not going to grow, that means he was lying. So it should grow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. We live yeah. trapped in language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how much of what we're doing even here is is like a sin because we're just muddling the water, muddying the waters by speaking. I have intimations of that, like, but, but, but I also am not fully convinced that that there's two routes to go. I'll end with this: there are two routes. You can sit, you can make the case that language is just pragmatic; it's just use, and that's the the Wittgenstein case. And I think to me, that's the easiest case to make. And I, I'm of the position that the easiest case to make is, is, is well, the primrose path is usually one that has, that's, that's false in some manner. So I don't, it could be the case. Like sometimes there's like just Occam's, an easy answer. Occam's razor, right? Just languages for utility. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are issues with Occam's razor too. We can talk about that another time. <laughs> but anyway, like people love it. Tim Maudlin talks about this. He's like, if you think there's a single adage that can get you to choose between two theories, like you're mistaken. That's not how the world works. Right. And also then you wonder, well, what's an assumption? If you just put an and between two assumptions, is that now one assumption? Mm. If I say God did it, is that one assumption? Or is that like 50 assumptions? Is mm. God one or, or 50? Like who knows what an assumption is? Right. Anyway. Anyway. the So there's the case to be made that language is just for use and that and that it's not meant to investigate these metaphysical questions, or there's the case that we need more explicit language, a more explicated language, so more differentiation rather yeah. than more unity. And I, I, I don't know, as as the analytic part and the experiential part of me are torn in, in different directions. And I think maybe there's a third option or a fourth, like we mm -hmm. just keep breaking it down analytically, experientially, 
-hmm. are those the two is, is there something is there a third is there a multitude is there 12 there's something holy about the number 12 so i tend to like that it's so just mystically it's fun 12 mm -hmm. but i don't know so, anyway anyway so it's good, good talking with you man yeah, oh yeah and if people are interested in the sorts of questions that i ask here or the sorts of topics that we raised here then visit theories of everything type that in into youtube into spotify itunes and so on and you'll and, and browse through the guest list there's there's quite a few there's chomsky who's been on seven times eight times he's coming up again and then there's tim Modlin and, and stephen wolfram and eric weinstein and jordan peterson though jordan peterson interviewed me much like you that was that must have been like must mm. be like oh man this is so cool Mm -hmm. yeah, it's like the largest platform I've been on. So I was super nervous during that. But mm -hmm. anyway, thanks, man. Yeah, Kurt, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Hope we can do it again. Yeah.